take your copies of God's holy and errant inspired word, turning with me to the book of Acts chapter 6, where today we will be studying verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is the institution of the office of deacon, the choosing of the seven. So Acts chapter 6, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 1 through 7, hear now the word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This reads, ends the reading of God's holy, inspired word. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts. <clears throat> Back, uh, if you'd asked me what my favorite Christmas ever was when I was a kid, my mom surprised me and my brother by getting us a Nintendo 64. And with that Nintendo 64, we had one game. It was called GoldenEye. 007. It was a James Bond spy game. And that started um, a almost addiction for me. Not for video games, but for spies. I thought being a spy would just be the coolest job that anybody could have. Uh, I became obsessed, not so much with the James Bond movies, but like the Mission Impossible movies. Man, even to this day, there's a new one that I just saw advertised that's come out. I need to watch it. I love spy novels and spy movies and spy TV shows and things like that. It's an amazing thing. But about a year ago, <clears throat> I kind of fell down this rabbit hole of kind of looking into what actual spies do. And I got to tell you, even though it's very interesting, it's not exactly very exciting. Uh, I listened to an interview from a CIA uh, agent who said his best spy was a guy who was a copy machine repairman. They, they recruited in this foreign government, and what he would do is when he would go in and fix a copier, he would put a little device in the copier that would send whatever, a picture of whatever was being copied to the CIA. And he was very successful. They, everything this government did, they made a copy of, the CIA got to see it. So he was collecting information. But there's another type of spy who performs the work of espionage. What espionage is, is coming into a, a country and creating division, chaos, slowing everything down, decaying the government and the wills of war from the inside. Um, as I was looking into this, I found a declassified World War II document that the United States used to train their uh, sympathizers in Germany and how they could be spies and espionage and sow the seeds of division within the Nazi government. And let me give you some examples that I read here in this book. And if you're like me and have ever worked in the corporate world, you're going to probably step back and think, I'm pretty sure I've been working for a spy my entire life. I mean, this just pretty much defines my, my, my career. 
become critical of efficient workers while promoting slackers. Multiply paperwork. Always call unnecessarily long meetings before performing any critical task. Do your work poorly, but blame it on inferior tools or management. Change policies all the time. And then finally, and this one cuts a little too, little too close for the Presbyterian in me, always send decisions to committees. <laughs> and add as many people to those committees as you possibly can. These are very ordinary things. It's something I've seen in the banking world. It's something I've seen in education. And unfortunately, that last part there is something I've seen in Presbyterianism. These things are designed by these spies to kind of slow everything down, to create chaos and division uh, within the government. And, and Satan works in a very similar way. We've seen so far through Acts him working on the outside of the church, particularly through the Sanhedrin, their threats, their imprisonments, their beating of the apostles that we saw last week. But he has another way of fighting against the church, and that is from the inside. And there's one thing in particular that he really likes to emphasize when he does this, division. If he can split the congregation, if he can split the minister from the word and from prayer and all these things, he can destroy the church, not from the outside, but from the inside. And so this morning, I want us to look at three things. The first two things are warnings. I want you to be warned of the dangers of division and why, you, and why we need to be on guard to, to make sure we're not uh, sowing the seeds of division. Secondly, the target of division. But thirdly, as a way of gospel application and for encouragement, I want us to see how God uses a unified church. So three points, the danger of division, the target of division, and God's use of unity. Let's begin by looking at the danger of division. We saw in chapter 5 a group of Christians taking their homes, their property, selling them, and dedicating all the proceeds to the daily distributions, for the, to fill the needs of anyone in the church who might have some requirement of them. Uh, these funds would have been used for uh, providing for the daily bread of the members of the church. Things like uh, food, uh, shelter, and things like that. But when we come into verse 1, we read that there is a Greek-speaking portion of this congregation in Jerusalem that has been overlooked. They are not receiving the daily distribution, and they are called the Hellenists. And just, just for a little bit of background, there in Jerusalem, most of the people there would have been from Jewish backgrounds. They probably would have lived in Jerusalem or in Judea or something like that. They would have been Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking. But there was also some Jews living in Jerusalem who would have lived their lives, had a career, and had their families in the Greek-speaking world. But when they got older and retired, they would all want to move back to Jerusalem to be kind of closer to home, the land of their fathers, the land of promise. And so there in their church, they would have been a minority, but a very large minority of this early Jerusalem church would have been made out of Greek-speaking widows. And they are being neglected. They're being overlooked. They are not receiving the daily distribution. So let's ask the question, Why? Are they being overlooked? Why are they being neglected? The first kind of easy knee-jerk reaction to our modern culture is, 
well, this must be some type of discrimination. Uh, they're speaking Greek. The Hebrews speaking Jews. They might they may not like them, but I look at the heart of the early church that we've seen so far in Acts, and I don't think this is a people here that is looking down their noses at the Greek-speaking Jews and thinking that they're a second class of Christian. Oh, we have one example here in this text. Just look down with me a few verses here uh, at the names of the deacons who are going to be called by this congregation. It's Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Are those Hebrew names? No, those are Greek names. And who are they chosen by? Not the apostles. It was the congregation. It was the gathering of the saints who elected these disciples uh, to come and to become given the ministry of tables, the service of the needs of, uh, of the widows. This does not seem like discrimination to me. I think a better and more plausible reason for why the widows are being neglected is because it's just a simple oversight. It's hard to nail down an exact timeline of the early chapters of Acts, but all of this, from chapter, from, from chapter 2 at Pentecost to where we are now in chapter 6, only a matter of months has passed. And the church is not grown by dozens or hundreds. It's grown by thousands. Thousands. Do you know how many changes would have had to take place in such a short amount of time? When I was at Westminster PCA in Huntsville, by the time I got there, our average attendance was about 300. By the time I left four years later, it had grown to be about 600. Um, and that's something they're still trying to catch up with today. But that's over four years. Could you imagine growing by five, maybe even 10,000 people in just a matter of months? And this is being led by 12 people. 12 people are leading this church of over 5,000 believers. It would be easy for something to get kind of lost and fall through the cracks and be accidentally ignored. But just because there might be an innocent reason why the widows have been neglected, it is still a problem. For in the early church, and in our church today too, widows serve a very important and necessary task. One of the things I'm doing right now in my devotional is I'm going through the pastoral epistles. And it's amazing how much Paul speaks about widows. But not so much the church's ministry to widows, but the widows' ministries to the church. Who better to come alongside a young wife than an elderly widow to show them the grace that God has shown them in their marriage, to disciple them, to mentor them? Who better to come alongside a young mother and to mentor them in a way to to raise a child according to the promises of God than a grandmother or a great-grandmother whose husband has passed away. Paul looked at the widow who had been kind of, for lack of a better term, unfettered from a husband as a primary candidate for ministry within the church. Widows were important. Widows were necessary. They still are important and necessary for the life of the church. Therefore, they must be ministered to. They must not be neglected. We need to pour not just funds and physical things, but our time, our efforts, our energy to encourage these widows so they don't rot on the vine, but that they can work with the church. They can serve the church and minister to the church as the church ministers to them. Widows must not be neglected. 
And I think that was the main problem in Acts chapter 6. I've read some commentaries that think that there's, a, there's another problem here. I, don't think, I, think, I think this is the main problem. But this does highlight, I think, a pro- different problem for the modern 21st century American church. That's the problem of complaining. I think in this church, I think they had a good reason to complain. I think they are actually are being neglected here. And I also think they're going through the, the right channels to make their complaints known. But here in America, in the 21st century, I, I think about uh, Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is called into the throne room, he sees the glory of God, and he says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. We here in America are a complaining people from a people of complaining. I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because we have a, uh, we want to feel like we are the victim, and so we had a victim mentality. Maybe it's just we want pity. Maybe we feel like we're unloved, and the best we can do is someone's pity, someone else's sympathy. And I'm not judging just the world. This is me, too. I was having a conversation the other day. I'm 30 minutes into it. I'm like, I think I've done nothing but complain this entire time. We are a nation of complainers. And when that complaining works its way into the church, you know what it does? It casts division. Now, not all, not all complaining is bad. We're celebrating the Protestant Reformation today. We're built on a complaint. If Martin Luther had not complained 500 years ago, we, we, I would be speaking Latin, and you wouldn't have a, any clue what I would be saying right now. Some complaints are necessary, but nonetheless, it must be asked of complaints. Is this complaint necessary? Is there something hindering the ministry and the truth of the gospel? Or did I just get my feelings hurt? Is my pride under assault? Am I not trusting the people of God place to lead this church? Am I a usurper? Am I a weapon in the hands of the adversary against the church? And even if we do truly believe that we have a legitimate complaint, the word of God gives us a way of sharing that complaint. And it isn't by complaining to everyone around us and casting division. We go to the person who is offended. We go and tell them, confront them. And if that doesn't work, we go to our pastor. We go to our elders. We go to the session. There's a way of doing this. Because if we don't do it the right way, we don't submit ourselves to the will of God. It can cause fractures within the church. And it always wounds me to hear of churches that are splitting or going through really trying times because of the complaints of people. I mean, not even good complaints. Completely unnecessary, petty things. I was at a church in Mississippi that split because a youth minister wanted to send the youth to a different camp than they had gone to in the past. I've seen church members come to blows because of what was decorating the, the communion table. I read the other day of a Presbyterian church in Dallas that went through a major split. They had to, they had to go to court because, like, what side was going to get the, the church grounds? You know what that was over? Over the thickness of a slice of ham that someone had gotten in a communion dinner. A slice of ham splits and divides the church. And I'll tell you why this is just awful. These petty issues take the glory of God that is to be seen in his church and it turns it 
into comedy for the world. We might even laugh at those things, but the world mocks those things. One of the qualifications that are given for the seven deacons in verse 3 is that they must be of good repute. That means that they must be thought, of, thought well of, be thought, uh, be thought to be good and useful men. When there is division in the church, the church itself pours out upon itself a poor reputation. And so I want us to be warned of two dangers of division. The first one, it severs and mutilates the body of Christ, re-crucifying him. Beware of division. Beware of your role in division. And second, it causes God to be mocked rather than glorified among the nations. Of course, when, of course, when truth is at stake, division is necessary. But when it is over, matter is not essential. It is an abomination to God and a wound upon Christ and his church. But God has given us not only a warning to be on lookout for the devices of Satan's espionage, but he has also shown us Satan's primary target, the foundation of the church, the ministry of the word. And this is our second point, the target of division. If you were a secret service agent placed in charge of the protection of the president and you hear a gunshot ring out, your first response would not be to protect yourself because here's the thing, they're probably not shooting at you. You're not important enough. The president is important enough. The enemy is always going to strike at the heart of his enemy. He's going to try to not just wound, but kill his enemy. And what is the heart of the church? It is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the word. Look at what the apostles say in verse 2. They say, um, they say, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this is not denigrating the work of the, the deacons, the service of tables. As we'll see in a little bit, that is a very necessary part of the ministry of any church. But what they are showing us by jumping to a defense of their preaching is that the ministry of the word is no secondary matter. It is the primary matter. It is a thing that must be protected above all things. Paul says that the word of God is given through the apostles in the New Testament and through the prophets of the Old Testament, and it is the foundation and the source of the entirety of the Christian life. Your hope, the source of that hope, is found in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your discipline's source is the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Your sanctification, your justification, everything about the Christian life, its source is found here in this word as it is opened, as it is read, as it is rightly divided and proclaimed into your ears and believed on by spirit-wrought faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a secondary matter. It is the primary matter. Look at how the apostles define their ministry in verse 4. They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They define their ministry by devotion to prayer and the scriptures. The word, the Greek word for devotion is literally translated as to give uh, to give constant attention to 
or to persevere continually in. The proclamation of the word, the pastor's study of scripture, the pastor's prayer over the scriptures and prayer for the congregation and prayer for his ministry is not something that is to be done in the cracks of the day in the pastor's spare time. It is the main thing. You know how gravity works? Gravity works like this. You have something like planet Earth that is so big and so massive as it hangs in space, it pulls everything into itself. That is the word of God in the life of the pastor. It is massive. It is so weighty that it pulls our time. It pulls our affections. It pulls our hearts, our minds, our souls, our families, everything into itself. And you can ask my wife. The question that she probably asked me the most of everything else is, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking? And what do I answer about three quarters of the time? My sermon. Something I read today. Something that I prayed about today. It has consumed my life. And this is what division does. Division drives a wedge between the pastor and the word. And whenever the weight of division, the weight of complaining, the weight of backbiting becomes so heavy that its gravitational pull begins to pull the pastor away from the church, that church is prime for death. It is through the proclamation of the word. That is your greatest need. And division destroys. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He said, I would say without hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. I hear much talk about a need of reformation, a need of a need of revival in this world. And yet I see so many churches seeking to attain this revival and this reformation through programs, through doing things in new and exciting ways. And you know what ends up happening whenever that, that takes place? One, the world ends up, the church ends up looking a lot more like the world than it does the people of God. And then secondly, you know what it does? It makes the pastor a CEO rather than a minister of the word. You know what Martin Luther, you know what Martin Luther gave all the credit to for the Protestant Reformation? It wasn't a program. It was the word of God. Listen, listen to what Martin Luther says. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the, all the papists for almost my entire ministry, but I never did it with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Yet I did nothing. The word did everything. As, as Charles Spurgeon said, how would I defend the word of God? I will defend the word of God in the same way that I would defend a lion. And I will simply unloose it and it will defend itself. Martin Luther is saying that same thing there. I slept. The word of God worked. What does the pastor need to do in order to preach the word? It goes beyond just sermon prep. 
and prepping, just looking at Acts 6 and seeing what is going on. In order to proclaim the word of God in spirit and in truth and in power, a lot of time is needed to read the word, a lot. To read of the giants of church history and what they said about the word, a lot. To pray over the word that I am preaching, to pray over myself as I deliver it to God's people, and to pray over you as you prepare to receive that word. It is all-consuming. It is weighty. It has gravitas to it. You know how God allows that? Through the ministry of tables. We think of what the work of the deacons does. Like, oh, well, they're just, you know, keeping up with the building. You know, if there's a need in the church, they give a little bit of money. There's a reason they do that. It is so that I, as the minister of this church, might be able to dedicate myself to prayer and the preaching of the word of God of God, that I might be able to not just read a scripture or two, but read through the Bible, to read through theologians, and to pray for you, and to pray over that word. I am so grateful for the deacons of this church. So grateful. As far as the diaconate work goes, the only thing I've really had to do is pour liquid plumber down my, uh, down my sink drain over here in my office. And that took two minutes. And by the way, Nathan, it didn't work. Uh, I've <laughs> Forgot to text you uh, back about that. Uh, we also need more liquid plumber. Um, that's it. That's it. That may not seem like much, but it frees me. And the same goes for the session, helping me shoulder the weight of the pastoral care of this congregation. To be able to sit in that office reading and to know that the spiritual needs of this church are being met by others is freeing for me. It allows me to dedicate my life and my all to this word. But Satan and his divisions, the complaining of the church, it can separate me from this word. And that is a deadly cancer upon the church. Seek to be rid of divisions. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your deacons. Pray for your elders that we might be able to serve you by giving you the word. It is of the utmost importance. And I want to finish this morning by drawing your attention to verse 7. I don't want to just sit here and talk about divisions and give warning after warning. I want to show you what God does with a unified church. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. It worked. Deacons were called. They served tables. And the word of God continued. Satan's devices failed. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even the priests were being saved. These are members of the Sanhedrin. The same people who just beat the tar out of the apostles were believing in the words of the apostles for their salvation. The same Sanhedrin that murdered and crucified Jesus Christ are coming to faith in the one whom they crucified. And there's a great application here. No one in here is beyond the saving reach of the grace of God. And no one in here knows anyone who is beyond the saving reach of the grace of God. I draw your attention to what we looked at. The guy that we were introduced to last week, Gamaliel, 
a Pharisee, a leader in the Sanhedrin. I don't know his heart. I don't know what his response was to the gospel. But I can judge the heart of his greatest student, of his greatest people, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a hater of Christ, a persecutor and ravager of the church who would bring Christian mothers kicking and screaming away from their families, drag fathers away from their homes and their families and their jobs because of their faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, we will see one of these deacons, Stephen, being stoned because he had the gall to preach the gospel to a group of, to a group of unbelieving Jews. And there, as he's bleeding and he's dying and, and he's about to give up his spirit, we see the pupil of Gamaliel nodding in approval over his stoning. He will be introduced to you as Saul of Tarsus, the chief of sinners. But we know him as Paul the great apostle. The grace of God took the greatest persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ and made him his greatest preacher. He wrote, he wrote more than half of the New Testament. The greatest persecutor becomes the, becomes the greatest promoter and proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. No one in here knows a soul who is beyond the saving reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ. No one does. And here's the thing. That grace sounds forth more loudly and more sweetly when it passes from the lips of a unified church. Certainly more so than a solo voice. Certainly more than a group of discombobulated confused, chaotic people singing each their own individual tune. It goes forth best when it goes forth in the harmony of unity. There's more on the line here than just us getting along with one another. The salvation of the world is at stake. Revive, you want revival? You want reformation? You want the spirit of Martin Luther to sing through its churches? Do not be divided. Be unified so that the word of God might continue to increase through pulpits, not just here, but in every corner of this globe. Our Heavenly Father, division is a cancer, yet you are the great physician. Father, and your word is your scalpel. Let it work. Let it be loosed. Let it go forth in power. May it roar like a lion and defend your honor and defend your glory and save your people for the sake of Jesus Christ who gave himself for those people. In his name we pray. Amen.